0: Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. On the line today with me is Mary Ellen Sanders from Colorado. Dr. Mary-Anne Sanders, PhD, is an internationally recognized consultant to the food and supplement companies in probiotic microbiology with special expertise in paths of scientific substantiation of probiotic product label claims. With over 110 peer-reviewed scientific publications on efficacy, substantiation, microbiology, and regulatory issues pertaining to probiotics to a name, Mary Allen strives to provide objective evidence-based information on probiotics for consumers and professionals. Some of Mary's key activities and roles include member of the working group convened by the FH. FAO, F- World Health Organization, that developed guidelines for probiotics. World Gastroenterology Organization Committee preparing practice guidelines for the use of probiotics and prebiotics for GI indications. Past member of the American Gastroenterology Association Scientific Board for AGA Center for Gut Microbiome Research and Education. Current Executive Science Officer and founding president of the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics the ISAP. This international non-profit association of academic and industrial scientists is dedicated to advancing the science of probiotics and prebiotics. Mary's website www.usprobiotics.org is a great resource. Welcome Mary.
1: Well thank you Nathan, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So yes, you've been in the industry for a, a very, very long time and um, from the 80s you've been publishing and just first of all I wanted to get your um, views on what it was like back then and, and now is it almost a, a golden era of probiotics with all this uh, DNA research and um, sequencing techniques compared to back then when in the 80s and 90s it was seemingly one or two papers published a year and uh, you're mostly relying on culture techniques so could you perhaps just give us a bit of a, a background of how it was then and, and how how it is now?
1: Yeah you, you bring up some excellent points I mean um, the last even 10 years has, has brought enormous changes in this field. When I was um, a graduate student, I was working in a laboratory that was that had some people investigating Lactobacillus acidophilus and I was very skeptical and would look down my nose at them doing this work that didn't have um, much credibility behind it and my major advisor laughs to this day about how I ended up being so involved in the probiotic field. Um, of course, back then, when I started graduate school in 1978, there were not very many publications that were really well-done randomized controlled trials in the probiotic field, and, and that has changed quite a bit as well. But but to your point about what's gone on with the, the sequencing revolution and the human microbiome project, um, certainly today we are looking at um, an understanding of the symbiosis between humans and their colonizing microbiota that we did not appreciate back then and that understanding of the role of, of the colonizing microorganisms um, in humans and 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 the role they play in in human health is is really evolving and it's a very exciting time
0: and yes and where do you see the future heading what's what sort of um, things do you hope for moving forward in the probiotic research
1: well, I think tying together the area of probiotic research with the human microbiome findings, what we have is a situation where, where it's very clear that the human microbiome is very important um, in health and that disruptions in that microbiota is associated with many disease states. So we have this observation that, that dysbiosis is associated with disease. What we don't have very much of um, out of this, you know, intense effort in the Human Microbiome Project, are controlled human studies that show that we can intervene at the level of the microbiota and improve health or correct the problems that are associated with this dysbiosis. And, and of course, probiotics are one means that people are hopeful for that that can actually accomplish that.
0: Great. So yes, we're just talking offline how the the Human Microbiome Project's uh unraveling all this data and information. And I think one of the criticisms from scientists who perhaps aren't so much into probiotics is that sometimes maybe the marketing gets ahead of the, the science in probiotics. And so one area I want to look at which um, almost challenges the one of the fundamental foundations of natural medicine is this um, seeding theory of probiotics. So obviously um, when patients have some sort of its just, just disruption to their microbiome, say antibiotics, Often uh, probiotics are given, and, and often they work very well. But the theory is that there's almost like this essentially bare patch of the, the microbiome, like a, a bare lawn, where you throw some seeds on, and they colonize. So the more I look into this, and I'm certainly no expert, but the the more I look into this, the more I, I start to question whether this theory um, specifically is sound. And I just want to give a couple sort of my thoughts, and I'll certainly get uh, your professional thoughts. But uh, first of all, um, one of the things that's really struck me is I'm not convinced now that the, the probiotics colonise. Not that that's a bad thing, but they don't typically hang around for more than a week or two. The second, the second thing that I'm wondering now is we often use uh, lactobacillus and, and bifidobacterium, which are, which are great. But when we look at all the, the species or um, genera in the microbiome, there's it, up to um, maybe 1,500 or more. So giving two genera, which are a pretty small proportion of the the microbiome, um, they're not really making much up of the, the head count in a sense. And finally, even um, the high dose. So one of the the theories is give more probiotics at a higher and higher dose, and that will um, add more seeds, for want a better term. So 45 billion, and I'm sure you've been working with these numbers for many years, but 45 billion sounds like a, as an example, sounds like a a large number of um, probiotics to give, but when we consider that some estimates, or the uh, accurate estimates, or the best accurate estimates at the moment is about 39 trillion cells in the microbiome. If I, mm-hmm. my maths are correct, that's a, um, a probiotic is about 0.001% of the total mm-hmm. microbiome. So if you're trying to supplement, like a, a nutritional supplement to top up, it's going to you're going to be there for a long time to, to put those bugs in. So mm-hmm. that's sort of my, my three concerns. Not to say those probiotics don't work, but I'm wondering if they work mm-hmm. in other, other ways. So can I get your thoughts on how probiotics interact with the, the composition of the microbiome? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I'd be happy actually to go through all three of those points that you just made, and, and those are all very valid um, concerns about this seeding theory that that is surely an oversimplification, um, if not an incorrect characterization of what goes on. Um, First of all, you are absolutely right. Back in the early days, the 70s and 80s of probiotic research, people quickly came to realize that even though they might select a probiotic strain to be able to adhere to human intestinal cell lines in in vitro assays, that that colonization ability really was not transferred when those strains were given to humans through a human feeding trial. So the, there was, um, it, it's clear that, that as you say, that t- the typical probiotic after it's consumed um, really will, depending on the dose that it's given, will hang around for a little while, but it, it, it does not um, colonize for any length of time. So you're absolutely right with that. Um, I think that what we have to recognize, though, is that that doesn't mean that the organisms, as they're traveling through and metabolizing as they're traveling through and growing as they're traveling through, um, that, that there are means for them to interact with the host during that journey. Yep. and and that I think is is what we have to recognize um, with regard to the mechanisms that are involved in probiotics functionality and and I will bring up your last point about dose and the the area of or, or the concern that it's such a small number in in comparison to the entire colonizing microbiota that we we carry in our bodies and in our guts but again, with this thinking about a probiotic traversing the body, what, what we have to remember is that it is not a homogeneous environment as they're entering our mouth and traveling through all the way to being expelled through our anus. And in fact, you have very different microenvironments and even you know larger environments that they're traveling through, and the colonization levels of those environments can be very different. So the oral cavity can have, you know, is a reasonably highly colonized area. The stomach, though, is, in fact, a sparsely colonized area. And so as probiotics are entering these sparsely colonized areas, um, especially the higher dose um, probiotics, you have an opportunity to probably have that strain be a dominant member of the region that it's traveling through. So you're absolutely right. Once it gets to the highly colonized colon, you um are, have a very small number of organisms that are present um proportional to the to the colonizing ones um but you do have an opportunity to be um you know a a, a big man on campus as you're traveling <laughs> through some of those more sparsely colonized regions and importantly especially the small intestine um you know, colonization through the small intestine is is thought to increase as you as you go from the proximal to the distal small intestine However, um, and, and and there are very important immune interacting cells that that are involved during that transit. So the probiotics, in fact, can really start having their impact on physiology in those sparsely colonized regions. So I I think that those are important components. Um, and I think that your your other your third point about probiotics being really derived from a very limited taxonomic group is a very fair one. And I think if you look at research being done today, there's many, many researchers and many, you know, entrepreneurial companies that are asking that question, which is, have we really selected the best taxonomic group for use as probiotics? And I think that there's many developments that we will see over the next, you know, two to five to ten years where they will have identified perhaps much more interesting species from our normal colonizing microbiota that could have unique health benefits that we might not expect a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium to be able to provide.
0: Yes, Uh, yes, I look forward to seeing what uh, uh, occurs in the future. So um, you recently published a paper questioning whether probiotics affect the composition Particularly in healthy people, can you uh, give us a synopsis of, uh, of what you wrote there?
1: Well, what I published was a commentary that was um, directed toward a meta-analysis that was, that was conducted. Um, the meta-analysis was conducted on healthy people whose microbiomes were analyzed after probiotic consumption, and the conclu- and I I, the, I believe the meta-analysis included seven different studies. Um, using different methodologies for characterizing or quantifying the microbiome, but they, um, but those, um, but, but the conclusion from that research was that probiotics do not have an impact on the microbiota of healthy people. And I actually was a reviewer on that paper, and I read it, and you know, I had comments to make, which I thought improved the paper overall. And I really didn't think that much of it. It the conclusions from the paper didn't really shock me. However, Mm -hmm. it was very interesting to see the way the media picked up on the paper Uh. because what the media did with the paper was they said um, the headlines were probiotics have no effect in healthy people. (laughs) And it was like, no, that's not the (laughs) conclusion. And it was really frustrating for me to think that that's how it it was spun. And I I understand, you know, that when you're in the media business, you're in the headline business, but it was still quite frustrating to think that what they conflated were the issues of having an impact on changing the microbiota structure or composition and being able to have an impact on health of healthy people. And those are two different endpoints. And in fact, what we really do care about more than anything is whether or not probiotics can can Im- can improve the health of somebody. It's more important that they're able to do that than that they're able to have some impact on some microbiome structure. Yes. And so my comments were essentially in that in that the article, the commentary I wrote was trying to point out that 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 the paper needs to be not misinterpreted.
0: Great. So yeah, so I think one of the the findings from the uh, human microbiome project is that uh, individuals can have a a quite varied uh, taxonomy between one another, but the function can be very, very similar to which I think there is this sort of hunt for the the perfect microbiome. And I've heard you speak about that it's a bit elusive and perhaps we should be shifting more towards the functional output of the microbiome. And do you think uh, probiotics have a, a function there instead of actual on who's there, but more so what they're doing?
1: Yes, and and I think that that those studies really have not been done in in great number. There have been a couple of studies that have been done that have shown that probiotics can have an impact on the metabolic functions or output of the microbiota, and and that is a valuable comment and or a, I should say a valuable observation because um, I think that one of the concepts. That are, that's emerging out of the human microbiome project as a whole in recent years has been that it very much may be function is much more important than composition. So in other words, instead of perseverating on what's there, what's there, what are the what are the best components of a microbiome? You know, what do we really want to strive for? What's missing? What's there and too high a number? Rather than asking all those questions, what we maybe should be asking is, what is the microbiome doing, what are its functions, and can we optimize those? And and those studies are hard to do. You need to have specialized technologies to be able to do them, and they're not cheap to do. But many more of those types of studies, um, looking at probiotics and their impact on function of the microbiota, are in the research pipelines right now.
0: Great. Right. A couple that you highlighted in your paper, which I wouldn't mind getting your interpretation of—they're quite lengthy papers—but um, one by Speed uh, by Claire Frazier looking at uh, administration of um, uh, LGG in elderly patients, in healthy elderly patients, and it mm-hmm. looked at the gene expression. Can you uh, explain what happened there and what they found?
1: Well, you know, I I should have read up on that paper more <laughs> than I did in preparation for this for this um, call, but. But, and, and I don't actually recall the specific endpoints. Um, one of the difficulties of looking at the, those types of papers, um, is that you find tremendous, or you, you, you generate tremendous amounts of data because you're looking at a whole bunch of different endpoints in terms of the, of, of, um, what kinds of potential effects on function you might see. And you're, and, and what I believe, um, Dr. Frazier did was that she looked really at the metagenome, I'm sorry, not the metagenomics, although I do think she did that as well. She looked at the transcriptomics um, of what happened after probiotics were administered. Uh, and, and she saw effects. So in other words, genes were clearly being expressed in the presence of probiotics that were not being expressed um, before the probiotics were, were given or when a placebo was given, Um, I think the difficulty of those types of studies, though, right now is that we don't really understand The importance of the changes that were observed So these are not for example validated biomarkers that they've developed right now where you could say You know a a 50% change in the expression of this gene is going to lead us to understand its effect on some health endpoint We're not really there yet (laughs) Um, but from a mechanistic point of view the fact that probiotics can be seen to af- affect not just uh, you know perhaps not what's there in healthy people but possibly change that probiotics may be able to affect changes in people with diseases and that part i think is still open for for discussion so you know keep in mind that the meta analysis we talked about was really looking only at healthy subjects so what we, you know, some of the outstanding research questions are: is what what can probiotics um, potentially do for a person who is in a dysbiotic state? Can it change the composition? And in, and we don't have many studies that, that that address that right now. And can it change the function as reflected in gene expression, or even in what's called metabolomics, where you actually look at microbial compounds small molecules that are outputs of um molecular i'm sorry um uh, microbiological metabolism so but these studies are difficult because we don't fully know how to interpret them right now we're, we're really in a data gathering um stage
0: great yeah so i was going to ask about uh, in dysbiotic states there has been you're correct there's not a whole heap but there are some research particularly on, Uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus lgg and saccharomyces boulardii where it seems when under a threat that the the probiotics administered seem to prevent the degradation or at least um, promote the the restoration of the the core bacteria of the uh, host um can you explain your findings or your your take on those those sort of studies
1: yeah you know i think this is one of the most fascinating underexplored questions in the probiotic field right now. Um, There are a few studies, there's a handful of studies that have asked the question that if you perturb the microbiota and that perturbation can be a result of giving antibiotics or some other type of, of medication Or possibly, if you get sophisticated, you might be able to look at stress or, you know, unfortunately, you can't give people gut pathogens. (laughs) But, but, you know, somehow cause a stress that causes the microbiota to be perturbed. I think a very interesting question right now is, is whether or not probiotics, if administered prior to that stress, can either can either cause the stress to not be I'm sorry cause the perturbation of the microbiota to not be so severe so in other words have a uh, that, the, that the perturbation has a lower impact on the on the microbiota overall or can it cause the per, the perturbed microbiota the dis, the disturbed microbiota to recover more quickly and we don't have good data on that right now. Um, there are, like, as you said, there are a few studies that, that have looked at it, but, but most of the studies that have been done to date, that at least that I'm aware of, have not used the, the modern technologies, the modern techniques that we have to really be able to characterize the microbiota to a, a fairly deep level. And, um, to me, that, that type of function where you can promote the, the stability of the microbiota, could be a could be huge, and and in fact it it could be a very important reflection of why it could be um, valuable for healthy people to take probiotics if if we could get you know discover that type of effect.
0: Yeah, great. Okay, so uh, like you said, the the media often beat up on and misinterpret uh, conclusions. So let's look at what actually uh, probiotics have been found to do to the host rather than the microbiome um, probably more important mm-hmm. is that our patients we're not treating the microbiome per se we're treating people um, right so even though we don't know all the mechanistic data and so forth there is still pretty good volume of our uh, clinical data on probiotics what what are some of the conditions where it's uh, really strong in?
1: Right, and, and before I, you know, I can I can sit and give you a list of, of indications that probiotics have been used, and, and there's a, a fair amount of compelling information on, and I will get to that in a second, but I just want to preface my comments with the fact that it, there's not an endpoint out there that probiotics have been studied on that... That anyone reviewing the literature isn't going to say, but more studies are needed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we, you know, there are obviously limitations in the data that we have. And, um, but having said that, there are a few very compelling endpoints for probiotics and, and health, um, or prevention or even treatment of disease that, have been reviewed by top level reviewers. So, for example, Cochrane reviews, which are considered to be the state of the art of looking at the totality of evidence on certain inter- on, on interventions. and and in many cases, they come to the conclusion that probiotics in general have been are shown to be effective, that probiotic studies show that 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 if you take a probiotic, you can get a better outcome than the people who were on placebo. And that's a very strong recommendation, especially in the context of the fact that probiotics tend to be such safe interventions, especially for generally healthy people. The The risk is low. It's never zero, but the risk tends to be fairly low. So that's kind of the context that I want to provide before rattling sure. these off. Um, but I, you know, certainly one at the top of the list in terms of probiotics and its efficacy is the prevention of antibiotic associated diarrhea. So people, there have been, you know, probably two dozen studies, randomized controlled trials using different probiotics that have shown that, that overall, if you look at the totality of the evidence and you, you sum the, or you, you average the effect, size from all the different studies, you can show an, an effect that probiotics can help prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And, and a um, sort of corollary to that is that they've also been shown to be able to prevent the onset of, of Clostridium difficile. And, and I, I guess instead of using the word prevention, I, what I should say is reduce the risk of. Yes. So in other words, it's not that, that you are, it's not as effective as, as having zero cases of C. difficile, but if you compare the placebo to the to the um, probiotic intervention, fewer people in the probiotic intervention are going to um, end up with C. diff. Um, fewer people in the probiotic intervention will end up with antibiotic-associated side effects, and and those are important. Um, you know, another area that the, the studies are on the older side, but... Um, um, have been, but certainly there were, were many different types of studies. But treatment of acute pediatric diarrhea is one that there are a compelling number of studies that have shown that you can reduce the length of time by about a day for children um, who have an uh, an acute bout of diarrhea if you give them probiotics. Um, one area that I think is is really a fascinating area, and and this is one area where actually they are starting to say that. More randomized, controlled placebo-controlled trials are probably not needed, believe it or not, is in the area of prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, What they do say is, yes, more studies are needed, but the types of studies you need to do are ones that compare different probiotics, that compare different doses. So, in other words, they should be studies that are targeted toward optimizing treatment, not comparing treatment to a placebo. And you can see, I think... Oh, gosh, I should have checked this before our, our chat, but somewhere in the range of a 30 percent reduction in mortality of infants who are at risk of developing this serious um, gut condition, which is um, occurs in premature infants. And so, you know, basically, Cochrane reviews have, have concluded that there needs to be a change in practice and that um, probiotics should be given um, given to premature infants to prevent necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, there's some robust studies in irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, um, some studies looking at reduced incidence and, dura- or, and duration of common upper respiratory tract infections, you know, flu-like symptoms, common cold in there. A meta-analysis was done on several studies, you know, showing an overall positive effect of probiotics in um, on those endpoints. There are even um, studies on probiotics showing, and there aren't too many of these studies, but showing um, that they certain probiotics can improve blood lipid profiles, so lower the um, LDL levels in, in blood lipids. So you know it's a nice litany of of different endpoints that have been tested. Um, certainly, people need to keep in mind that not all probiotics can be expected to exert all the benefits. <laughs> you know that that I just rattled off. So we have to expect that 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 at least some of these effects are are likely tied to specific strains that have characteristics that maybe aren't shared among all different possible probiotics
0: yeah definitely and I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in the near future there's a seems to be a, a massive interest in these quote unquote psychobiotics that are affecting mm. mood and, and behavior and so forth so i think it's still yeah. pretty early days there
1: yeah there's there's a few human studies that have been done oh. on that that have interesting um outcomes and and um the animal studies you know just knock your socks off in terms of the effects that certain probiotics can have on expressions of anxiety and stress in, in animal model systems. But, of course, um, people are not mice. And so it, yes. <laughs> it, you have to always get that to translate into the human, and that's not always the easiest thing to do. But but let's hope that, that those types of endpoints can be um, clarified, as well as the endpoints, for example, with obesity and diabetes, yeah. um, you know, we know that the gut microbiota plays a role in those people with who are obese and have diabetes have um, a, a microbiome that's different from healthy controls. So it's a it's an open question whether or not probiotics might be able or prebiotics for that matter might, might be able to come in and uh, and help correct some of that and lead to an improvement in those conditions.
0: True. So one other seemingly hurdle is from a commercial and regulatory point of view, and I believe you've worked in this area for a long time. And Mm -hmm. I have to admit, it's a little bit alarming when you look at the research. Uh, Some of it's on foods and yogurts and so forth, but Mm -hmm. often it's also on um, supplements about the the labelling and when they try and identify organisms, sometimes they're non-existent. Um, Could you give us a bit of an outline of what the research has found and some of the the issues in, in this sort of area?
1: Yes, um, you are correct that there are products on the market that are commercialized that, that are not high quality products. And there have been enough studies done in different regions throughout the world to suggest that there's products that, that aren't good. And those products, you know, may not be high quality because the organisms that are in them are not stable. And so a probiotic is a live microorganism with a health benefit. As soon as that microorganism dies, it's not a probiotic anymore, and you can't expect it to confer that health benefit. So if, if they don't have proper stabilization technology, that, that through the course of shelf life, those organisms may die, and that's assuming they even put them in at the proper amount to begin with. And, and that's a heads-up for any um, uh, people who are looking at products. Really, a product should be labeled with their count, so whatever dose it's able to deliver at the end of shelf life, because if you only have a dose at time of manufacture, you really don't know what to expect over the course of holding that product. Um, those products also may be mislabeled with regard to the proper identification of the microbes that are in there. And some of these misidentifications are 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 innocent enough so for example you might see a product labeled with that might say bifidobacterium lactis well bifidobacterium lactis actually the correct name is bifidobacterium animalis subspecies lactis but that's such a mouthful that i think <laughs> some commercial you know commercializers will just go ahead and abbreviate it and i can kind of excuse that But there are some more, much more egregious um, problems with product labeling. Um, One example of that is um, companies that might label a product called Lactobacillus spirogenes, and there's no such thing as that organism. In fact, it's a bacillus, um, very likely a coagulans, although who knows what's in them, because they're not owning up to what's in them. But, um, but you know, that type of, of not even getting the genus right is, is completely inexcusable, um, it, from, from a labeling point of view and a commercial responsibility. But, but the one other thing I will point out on the flip side of this is that some of the people or the researchers who, who undertake this goal of, you know, kind of policing the market and saying what has what in it and is it, you know, do they, are they, um, do they have counts that are too low or whatever? You know, it's some of it's you can only do methods. I'm sorry, I, I, they, Your your results that you get out of doing um, a, an experiment are only as good as the methods that you use to do it. And and it's sometimes these organisms can be tricky to really analyze properly. And the companies that that let's say they are doing a good job may have methodologies that use certain tricks that wouldn't necessarily be used by research groups that are enumerating them, and and so I think we have to be a little bit careful to say that 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 you know sometimes the methods may not really fully give an accurate picture of of what's in them if they're not done using the proper methods.
0: Interesting. Uh, so you've worked with the ISAF uh, organization uh, for a long time, and you've come up with some guidelines for both uh, practitioners or consumers choosing Mm -hmm. probiotics. What's the the main takeaway messages from those?
1: Well, um, yeah, the main takeaway on those is that, first of all, a a manufacturer of a probiotic should identify the organisms that are there. We've touched on this, but but products should show the genus, the species, and the strain of every organism that's there. Um, A product should show the dose that's present in the product through the end of shelf life. So to say our product has 20 billion at time of manufacture really doesn't give the consumer enough information to know what it's going to be after it's, it's sitting on the shelf for a while. Um, an, another component of those um, um, guidelines is that products should be labeled with some indication of what kinds of studies have been done on those products. Now the difficulty of course is is that globally there are serious restrictions depending on the category of product you have in terms of what can be said. And so it it becomes very difficult <laughs> for consumers um, to really know what products have been tested, uh you know what endpoints they've been tested for, and it's difficult for, for manufacturers to really communicate fully what kinds of studies have been done. Um so you know those those are a few of the important ones. Uh, a product should also clearly tell consumers how, how to what the proper storage conditions are because some products need to be refrigerated, others don't and and consumers need to know that.
0: Great, thank you. Um, you, you raised a point I want to touch upon was uh, the bacillus coagulins. So this is a, a, a probiotic that's often used now and this sort of um, increase your your dirtiness type of, uh combating the hygiene hypothesis type of idea and we were speaking um, offline about um this is being popularized by the a fantastic researcher in justin sonnenberg but um as you're pointing out that it's an idea it hasn't been well established yet so there is a bit of a movement about getting dirtier for want of a better term and using these soil-based organisms and so forth what's your, what's your thoughts on those and any sort of concerns
1: Oh well, there's always concerns with live microbes. You you have, you absolutely um, cannot recommend that that people start consuming microbes that aren't known to be safe. And and you know if you look at the history of microbiology over the past decades, the vast majority of it has been spent in understanding what pathogens are there and how to get rid of them. And um, you know so we we can't underestimate that that. There are pathogens and they can seriously, they can, they can be seriously dangerous to people. So having said that, it's a very small percentage of total microbes that are pathogenic. It's a very small number. And what the Human Microbiome Project has taught us is that it's very important for developing humans. So from infancy on to be exposed to microbes so that their immune systems develop properly. And this, th- that research has been done in germ-free animals to show that animals that aren't exposed to microbes have a very poorly developed immune system and are very susceptible to infections. And they you know, they have underdeveloped um, guts, and you know, there's just a lot of differences if, if you don't have that microbial exposure. And one of the facts about modern industrialized society. Is that we have very few opportunities uh, to be exposed to live microbes and that's partly due to sanitation which is a wonderful thing <laughs> you know we, we, we can't disparage it at all but because we have we live in such cleaner environments now we we don't have the opportunity to be exposed to being dirty the way we did when we were evolving with this large complement of microorganisms. So people would, would make the hypothesis that, that it's actually, we're actually in a sort of a permanent quote unquote dysbiotic state because we don't feed ourselves on an ongoing basis the really high number of microbes that our early, um, you know, Paleolithic ancestors would have been consuming. So then the question is, is, is it possible to try to mimic that consumption of microorganisms with, with safe probiotics or, or other types of, um, uh, interventions such as fermented foods? And, and I think the, the answer to that is probably yes. You know, probably consuming many more live microbes than, than we typically might is probably a good thing. But we don't really have the robust data to say, here's the health endpoints that you can expect to see. But um, I, I think that, that it's probably a fair hypothesis that, that we evolved being exposed to more live microbes than we are exposed to today. So trying to get those either through foods or environmental exposure is probably not a bad thing.
0: Interesting. So that sort of leads on to my final question. is on on. Uh, where do you see probiotics going in the future? Would we be maybe prescribing based off our microbiome composition or function or um, expanding mm-hmm. our our toolkit away from, not to say that I, I probably need to point out that there is pretty good evidence with lactobacillus and, and Bifidobacterium. it's just they're a small subset of the microbiome, but um, could we see us expanding from that? Um, and finally, the other, other one that I'm finding very intriguing, and this may be a long way off from commercial uses, that the Helmer therapy uh, mm-hmm. using parasites, which may not you know, mm-hmm. be by definition a parasite any longer if they're confirming, conferring uh, benefit to the host. So, what's the sort mm-hmm. of uh, frontier look like, do you think, with uh, probiotic mm-hmm. research?
1: I, I think that you're absolutely right that what we're going to see in the next, um, you know, Three to five to ten years is going to be an expansion of the types of microorganisms that are used as probiotics. I think it's very likely that those, um, depending on the ge- geographical region you're in, are going to be developed in in a pharmaceutical or drug model that they're not necessarily going to be in foods or dietary supplements. And I think those microorganisms or possibly consortia of defined microorganisms, so maybe a collection of thirty different microbes that are going to be shown to be important for correcting some dysbiotic state. Um, I, I do believe that those will be on the market. And um I, I you know you can see that the beginnings of, of that going on right now. Um and I think that, that there's real potential there. Um I you know, we don't want to overhype it, but I do think that probiotics have an opportunity to, to really make a difference for certain disease states if they're properly selected for the traits that are needed. Um, I also think we're going to see a continuation of what we've been seeing just in the last few years, which is a real increase, at least in the United States, of interest in fermented foods and high-fiber diets. Yes. And and people are starting to make their own yogurts and make their own sour sauerkrauts and, you know, ferment their own kombucha teas and, you know, really try to bring back into the household the concept that that, you know, living foods is, is a valuable component of the diet. And I think that we're going to see that trend um, increase Um I do think also you you make a really good point about prescribing based on your microbiome, and I know that there's a certain amount of that that goes on right now. I'm not sure how science-based it is or evidence-based those efforts are at this point, but it's gotten so simple <laughs> to get an overall parameter measure of your microbiota that that it very well may be that down the road we're going to be able to say that this particular pattern of, of colonizing microbes is more likely to respond to this particular category of, of probiotic, um, and you know that's clearly can. And it's funny that you bring up helmets because I was just at the vet. <laughs> two days ago, or not at the vet, I'm sorry, I was at the barn, I, I have a horse, and the vet came out to give spring shots, and I said, hey, you know, I'm really confused about the whole approach to warning these horses, because I've owned this horse for 15 years, and every two months I'm supposed to give him this warning medicine, and and he, just, my vet just cut me off, and he's he's probably in his mid-60s now, so he's he's seen a lot, he's been around. And he, his comment was, as he goes, well, you know now they're saying that low level of parasite infection is better for your horse.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
1: And so, and I just laughed because I was thinking, well, they're starting to say that about people as well. <laughs> and um, I think with, with helmets, you're going to have to get over that ick factor of, <laughs>
0: yes. of,
1: you know, what it's going to be like to have to embed a parasite. But, but I think you're absolutely right. We we have a tendency in this field to focus on the bacteria, but the parasites and viruses that are colonizing our bodies are probably every bit as important. And, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's it's certainly in the realm of possibility.
0: <laughs> well, it's an exciting time, and, uh, and perhaps we can catch uh, up in a couple of years' time and see what advances have been made. So, Mary Ellen, um perhaps just give us uh, some details on where we can find out more about you and and what you're doing?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I do have a website. It's www.mesanders.com, M-E-S-A-M-D-E-R-S.com. And um, as you mentioned in the beginning, feel free to check out the website that I develop um, content for called usprobiotics.org. And also, I'd like to direct people to the ISAP website, yes. um, isapscience.org, isaptscience.org And that website, um, especially under the resources tabs, has yes. some interesting information, some infographics. We're hoping to post some videos in the next few months oh, up great. there that are going to provide some basic um, information on, on pro and prebiotics, yes. and as well as fermented foods.
0: we got some beautiful uh, infographics there. And uh, yes. is the ISAP meeting soon in June, is that correct?
1: Yep, we have a meeting in June. We keep our meetings very small typically, although in 2018, in June, we're going to be having our first meeting in Asia. We're going to be going to Singapore, so, and that will be an open registration meeting. So if people are interested in participating in that, um, you know, make a note in your calendar, and feel free to contact me through the ISAP website, and I'd be happy to give you further information.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure, Mary Allen. and uh, congratulations on the hard work you're doing, and I look forward to reading more about what you're up to in the future, and hopefully we can catch up in, in uh, the future as well.
1: Okay, thanks so much, Nathan. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you.